to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. A part of the reason to talk about this, why we do the things we do when we gather, is because in a very real way, essentially what we're talking about, or at the heart, maybe the implicit sort of conversation in all this is, what does it mean to be church, or to quote-unquote have church? And I think this is important because as we think about, okay, so what are we doing when we, we all come together, we sort of face forward, we stand up, we sit down, we sing, we do these things, and, and probably none of you have ever had this thought. But occasionally, you may have this thought, and that is, eh, what if we don't go this week? What are we really missing? I mean, what's the big deal? It's just sort of church. None of you have thought that, I know, because I see you each week. Uh, but, but, but some others, no. It, there is this tendency sometimes to have this, this, this thing, oh, okay, so what's the big deal if I don't go uh, today or this week or next month, whatever? And, and is it, you know, you know, where's the sense of obligation and where's the sense of showing up? Uh, and, and can't we just have sort of church as we have scrambled eggs and all that sort of thing and just talk about the Bible? Y- yes and no, okay? So part of the reason w- w- we're doing this series is to say, okay, there are a few things that are very important for us as we learn to be the community of God's people. And we make a point to do these things together each week. And, uh, and so this series is kind of explaining that. So week one, we talked about sacred rhythms or sacred rituals and and what is the deal with that? I mean, come on, can't we just sort of live spontaneously and just do things when we feel it? And, and uh, isn't it most important to sort of be sincere and heartfelt in our relationship with God? Well, I wonder if that was, if you followed that same uh, pattern with brushing your teeth, how that would work out, you know? Well, I only brush my teeth when I feel passionate about brushing my teeth. Well, you know what? It's probably not going to happen, you know. Some of you maybe are very enthusiastic about flossing and whatnot, but others of you may not be. We sort of, we adopt these things, we submit to it because we say, okay, you know what? I understand that I am joining something larger than myself. I'm joining a story already in progress, and so I'm submitting to this. I'm saying yes to this. And so we gather as part of our rhythm. We say the creed. We do these things as a way of saying, this is what it means to be marked. This is what it means to be the people of God. And to be honest, everything about our independence pushes against that and fights against that. So that was all week one. And week two, last week, we talked about uh, worship, uh, and, and specifically how worship in spirit and in truth, what that means, and, and how maybe for a lot of us we understand the worship in spirit part of it, and we understand uh, uh, the sense that God is actually with us, as Matthew's been telling us during worship uh, tonight even. We, we, we get the sense of that, but what does it mean to stay tethered to the dock, so to speak, so that we don't become this boat floating away from the shore? What does it mean to worship in truth? Uh, can, we be, can we have an emotional experience that is not anchored to any actual event or, or, or um, Christ himself? And then it, be, it becomes sort of meaningless. And so that was last week. And we talked about why we say the creed uh, each week and why we, why we do communion each week and how those two things in themselves uh, remind us that you know, worship is not just us responding to God. It's us participating in, in the very communion 
of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is, if that sounds like a mystery, it is a great mystery. And that's part of what we do each week in communion when we take the bread and take the cup. It's rooting us to something, rooting us in this act, and we're reenacting it. Anyway, I, I, I always am reluctant to recap the previous weeks because I tend to re-preach the sermons. So uh, t- tonight, is, uh, tonight is week three, and we're talking about prayer. Uh, and prayer is, is a fun subject, and tonight the specific title of this is Learning to Pray Together. So as we talk about prayer, part of the, the elements in the service that we're going to sort of uh, uh, unpack um, are the pieces like the Lord's Prayer or the prayer of confession that we say together. So Glenn, what's the deal with that? I mean, can't we just kind of pray on our own? Why do we need words on the screen? Um, Many of you know my wife is from Iowa, and uh, her, her family, they've been going to church um, for their whole lives, and their grandparents, it was just sort of part of the thing. You either went to the Lutheran church, or you went to the, you know, there were just different things, and if so-and-so was on the, the roster of the church membership thing, this is what you did from generation to generation. It was kind of like farming. So I, I remember when one of my first visits to Iowa to be with the family, uh, it was a Thanksgiving meal or, or one of the holidays. And uh, the eyes sort of turning to me at mealtime to say, you're the pastor, would you, would you pray? You know, would you give the blessing? And, uh, you know, I felt like saying, well, okay, good. Well, I am a professional, so don't try this at home. I'll, go, I'll take it from here. You know, I know how to, I have, I've been trained. Um, <laughs> and we find, you laugh because all of us have been, have sort of been um, brought up with this voice in our head that says, man, you don't need pompous words. You don't need anyone to teach you how to pray. You can just pray. In fact, very often we've, we've told people when they uh, come to Jesus and they, they say, yes, I'm going to surrender my life. We often tell them, okay, well, good. You're in. Now just start praying because that makes a lot of sense, right? Well, just start praying and just use the words that, that come to your mind. Just say whatever comes to your mind. Prayer is just talking to God. So just have a chat with him. And they're looking at you like, Okay, you know, and we're so confident that this is how to do it. Now, there's something beautiful about the simplicity of that. There's something in that that, that reminds me of the, the, the parable that Jesus told of the, the religious person at the, the temple who says, you know, God, thank you that I'm not like these sinners, you know. And then the other guy who comes in beating his chest and saying, have mercy on me, a sinner. We know that God listens to cries from our heart. We, we, we do know that. But there is this assumption that nobody needs to teach us to pray, that you can just sort of do it. That just, just go, just pray. Just say whatever's in your heart. God will listen. God doesn't care. Just pray. And to be honest, I've worked with that assumption for the better part of my life. And it was a couple years ago that um, there was a gentleman that, that began to challenge me on this. And um, he describes himself as a recovering atheist. And I, he and I emailed this week to, to discuss this. I told him I, I was planning on sharing this this week. And, and, uh, and he, said, he said, Glenn, do you think that people who come to church actually know what they believe about God? And I said, well, sure they do. And then he says, well, your prayers and the songs don't really help that. And I said, well, pff, you're crazy. It doesn't matter if the prayers mention the Trinity or the Incarnation. Everybody knows and he says, do they? And I said, sure they do. A few weeks later, he's not so subtle, sends me you know, a, a USA Today article about 
all these Christian young people that were surveyed. Do you remember this study you know, several years back? I think it was by the University of Notre Dame. And they surveyed all these young people that had grown up in church and said, describe the God that you believe in. And they fill in these things. They describe the same. And, and these researchers said, okay, the religion of America's young people is essentially, can essentially be described as moralistic, therapeutic deism. The belief in a God who wants me to do good things, feel good, but other than that, he's pretty uninvolved in my life. And then I began to think, gee, I wonder if the way we pray or the way we sing or what the things we do and say in church help that or undermine that, correct that. Uh, are we contributing to this? Are we doing anything to change this? And I began to, to think about this. Does the language of our prayer matter? Is it do we have to learn in a certain, to, in, to a certain degree to pray? Or can we go on the rest of our lives just praying what comes naturally? That's what we're going to explore tonight. Mark chapter 10 is our text. And if you turn there with me, this is a familiar story, the story of, a story of a blind man named Bartimaeus. And verse 46 is where we'll begin. And, uh, and, and this is, this is uh, again, a very familiar story and, and I really just want to point out one thing toward the end of the story, but let's go through the text and sort of uh, try to enter this story as we hear it. They came to Jericho, and as Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. You know what? I I think this may help if you you just kind of picture this with me. So here's Bartimaeus, and he's sitting on the side of the road, and he's blind, and so his whole life has been about learning to pay attention to sound, and so he's listening. And what he begins to hear is what he hears every day is the sound of feet, sound of, of people's feet moving all around him and someone trying to sell this and someone trying to buy this and occasionally people kicking on him, tripping on, on him accidentally and, and then yelling at him and saying, get out of the way. And so he's kind of on the side of the road and then he hears footsteps walking by as is pretty normal and, 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 and then all of a sudden he, he, he hears this name that keeps being whispered in this crowd of footsteps that's walking closer and closer to him. And this name is a name that he's heard of, he's heard some stories about, and it's this name, Jesus. And as the footsteps come closer, he's pretty sure, yeah, that, I think that's him. I think there's this guy talking, and everyone keeps saying, uh, Jesus, and, and they're asking him questions, and he's answering stuff, and the footsteps begin to slowly move past him. And Bartimaeus says, man, i got nothing to lose, and so he starts to cry out, have mercy on me, son of David. For a moment, the footsteps stop. And then there's this voice that comes, answers him. But it's a pretty harsh voice. It's not a very nice voice. And the voice says, be quiet. Stay away. And Bartimaeus, you know, he's not startled by that in one sense because he's used to hearing that. But he can't miss out if this really is Jesus. And so he cries out again. And he says, no, have mercy, son of David. And the footsteps haven't started yet. They're all still there. And he thinks he hears this voice that's a different voice, a a kind voice, a tender voice that says, call him. Call him. Footsteps come toward him, and then that gruff, rough voice speaks again, says, hey, cheer up. Cheer up. Didn't you just tell me to shut up? Cheer up. On your feet. He's calling you. Bartimaeus gets up and you can kind of tell that the, the, the crowd's parted a little bit. And 
And he's walking and he's making his way here. And, and he hears the kind voice now begin to speak to him. And the voice says, Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? Now, at first glance, this is a strange question because isn't it obvious? He's blind. I mean, Jesus, geez, adding insult to injury here. I mean, what are you doing? Is this just mean? Is this one of those, uh, you know, rabbi tricks or, you know, like, and he says, no, what do you want me to do for you? And here's what's interesting about this. Bartimaeus is not calling Jesus by just any name. He calls him son of David. Now, to us, that may not mean much because, first of all, we might say, well, it wasn't like Joseph, kind of his dad, quote-unquote, you know, who's David? You know? And you realize that for the, for the Jewish people, David was the greatest king they ever had. And son of David was this title that they had saved, that they had cherished, that they had nourished in their hearts and in their minds for centuries. Son of David was the person that was going to come to deliver them. Son of David was the guy, the deliverer, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was going to actually rescue them. And so Bartimaeus, when he calls out to Jesus, doesn't just say, Hey, 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 Rabbi, hey, Nazareth man, hey, Jesus of Galilee. He says, son of David. Bartimaeus, in essence, is calling Jesus a name, a title kind of name. It's, a, it's, an, it's an expression of faith saying, I think you really are the Messiah. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do? Because Jesus is saying, all right, you think I'm Messiah? then ask me something that only Messiah can do. Ask me for something that only Messiah can do. If you want bread, you could ask Peter for bread. If you want another cloak, you could ask James for cloak. But if you want something only Messiah can do, show me that you really think I'm the Messiah. And maybe Bartimaeus has been sitting on the roadside long enough to have picked up conversations. Maybe he, he knows that, look, isn't, didn't the prophet Isaiah say that when Messiah comes, the blind eyes shall be opened? Wasn't there something? Did, didn't Jesus stand up in a synagogue and read a scroll saying, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me to proclaim free? You know? And maybe Bartimaeus is saying, I, I know what Messiah can do. What I want to suggest to you tonight is that what you ask of God reveals what you believe about God. That prayer is not just an abstract thing. Prayer is not something disconnected. Your prayer actually reveals your theology. That it's far more serious than just saying, well, isn't prayer just sort of chatting with God and we could just have a, a little chit-chat? Actually, your prayer shows me what you really think is true about God. I wonder if we stopped right here, we could say, well, gee, if we took a, a little survey of all the prayers you've prayed, would I come to the conclusion that God is my errand boy? Would I come to the conclusion that God is like a parking spot genie? You know, at the mall. Oh God, please, a close spot. Oh yes, hallelujah. 
Nothing wrong per se. But what's all of our prayers taken together? What do they, they, they actually would say a pretty good statement about what you actually believe about God. They've, all of us know how, if you've been in church for even a little while, probably you've learned the Sunday school answers. If you haven't, I'll just tell you, the, the correct answer is usually always Jesus. Okay. So we've, we've learned how to get there. So what do you believe is true? And this, you know, we, we, we can memorize propositional statements, but prayer is so deeply personal that prayer usually always gives us away. Prayer always shows our cards. Prayer always reveals our theology. The church historically has had this phrase in Latin that the same friend of mine who challenged me on the songs I write and the songs I sing and the prayers I pray challenged me about this about two years ago and it's, it's wrecked me in the best way. But it's this Latin phrase that goes like this, lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. Now those of you that you know, went to a school where you study Latin, you're working on your Latin roots or whatever, you know. By the way, a little aside, this is kind of nerdy, but my whole family was just enthralled with the celebrity spelling bee uh, a couple nights ago. I mean, we just, we delayed dinner because we were like, these kids. Anyway, you know, it was like some crazy word, language of origin, please. Oh, well, that's, you know, anyway, whatever. Okay, lex, lex of course, is this Latin word for law or rule of credendi. When you, or, orandi is the word for prayer or worship. Credendi is the, the creed, the way what you believe, okay? Vivendi from, from life, vi, uh, the way you live. So lex orandi, lex credendi, lex... This has been the statement. Uh, the church has had this as one of their uh, landmark statements. And, and essentially it means this in English. The way you pray is the way you believe is the way you live. There's actually no separation. The way you pray is the way you believe is the way you live. If we wonder sometimes why we struggle to, to really live out our faith, I have to wonder if part of it is because when we gather, nobody is shaping the language of our prayer. We're telling each other, just go ahead, just pray what's in your heart. And so we have Christians that all they've done is they've sanctified their own selfish desires and called it prayer and sanctified selfishness and called it prayer. And nobody stopped to say, hang on, prayer is a language that must be learned and, and, and this, is required. this is huge because eventually the way you pray is the way you believe and it is the way you live. If all you've learned to pray is, God, do this for me, and God, make this happen, and God, make that happen, and God, I command, and God, I speak, and God, I proclaim, and God, I confess, then when, that doesn't, when life doesn't fit that paradigm, all of a sudden your belief about God starts to shatter. And then your living, the way you live for God begins to unravel. And it, it, it's possible that all of this began because nobody said, hey, welcome to the family let me teach you how to pray. Instead of saying, well, just go, just go chat with God. I want to say for us tonight three things about prayer as a language. And the first is this, that prayer is a personal language. And when I say this, I don't mean private, and you'll see this by the second point, but when I say personal, there is something about prayer that is meant to come 
from the depths of our heart and not simply from off the top of our heads. Okay, well, God, bless this, pray for the, you know. I love that. Uh, uh, should I reference the movie? No, I'm not going to do it. Okay. Matthew 6, verse 5 through 7. And when you pray, Jesus says, do not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And this is Jesus, obviously, in his Sermon on the Mount. And he says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they'll be heard because of their many words. There's something here. Where one of the first things Jesus says about prayer is, go to your room, close the door. There is something personal about this. And I understand part of the reason where we have the church services we have is because a lot of people before us were possibly reacting or responding, whatever it may be, to a previous kind of prayer that left them out, that kind of said, well, prayer is for the pros, so please don't try this at home. And... There's, this, there's been the pushback that says, no, wait, no, look, we, we can pray. And, and this is what I think Jesus is saying is, look, there is something about this where you do shut aside the distractions. There is a kind of prayer that is silence and solitude. There is a kind of prayer that's not about the right words and incantations and spells. Remember, this isn't magic. This is the miracle of communion with God. And so there's something about prayer that is deeply personal. If you read the Psalms, you will find that many of them are individual Psalms, individual laments even. Here's Stephen Todd. He teaches a class with King Seminary on the Psalms. There, 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 is this, there is this sense when you read and pray the Psalms that there's something actually going on. David and all these guys are not writing abstractions. They're saying, no, like I'm actually surrounded by enemies. No, like they're right, they're right there. You know, I see them. Help! Deeply personal prayers. There is something about that. But prayer is not just a personal language, it is also a communal language. Meaning it is something we pray together. One of the more interesting things, and Stephen, I think you you taught this in, in a Sunday school class earlier this year, on the Psalms, you guys can get the Sunday School podcast. You know that for all the different ones. We did a series on the Psalms, and Dr. Todd and I co-taught it, did a couple of weeks, and we, he was looking at Psalm 51, and, and, you know, Psalm 51, we use this as our prayer of confession each week, and, you know, many of you will know that Psalm 51 is David's prayer of confession. In fact, if I were to, in many in your Bibles, it has the inscriptions that says, look, this is David's prayer of confession after the whole deal with Bathsheba and the adultery and all of this thing. So if there ever was a prayer that was personal, it was Psalm 51, right? It's not like David wrote this and said, okay, so for anyone else who stayed home from battle and saw a naked lady bathing and decided, this is David's prayer of confession. But what's amazing is toward the end of Psalm 51, verse 18 and 19 says this, May it please you to prosper Zion and to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole, and then bulls will be offered on your altar. Wait a second. The walls around Jerusalem? Weren't there walls around Jerusalem when David was king? Yeah. When did the walls get destroyed around Jerusalem? 
This is one of those Sunday school trivia questions to which the correct answer is not Jesus. <laughs> 586, when the Babylonians come in and take away Judah, take these two tribes captive, destroy the city. You remember the book of Nehemiah in your Bible is about Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem because he's heard reports of the walls being burned into rubble. It seems that somebody's edited Psalm 51. It seems someone's taken David's personal prayer and messed with it. Kind of like a modern songwriter taking a public domain hymn and adding a chorus and making royalties. Oh, sorry, okay. (laughs) Woo! Whoa. Sorry, I won't do that again. Okay. Um, Somebody's messed with David's public domain personal prayer. Could it be that David's very personal psalm of repentance became a prayer that a nation who had become adulterous found fitting to pray? Remember that God's message through the prophets about Israel's sin was always about their idolatry, and idolatry was always described as an unfaithful spouse. Maybe this very personal prayer of David found resonance within the community of Israel because they said, it's not just David, it's all of us. We're all adulterers who've gone our own way. And so, Lord, rebuild the walls around. Isn't this something? Something as personal as Psalm 51 becomes a communal prayer. The early Christians, actually, one of the earliest songs, some of, two of the earliest songs they sang were the Song of Mary and the Song of Zechariah, the Magnificat and the Benedictus, these, these two songs. Now, again, these, Mary wasn't sitting in her room saying, man, what would be great for my upcoming world tour? I need a tune, spirit. She's singing because she's just been announced. The, 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 the visitation from Gabriel. Has, you know, Zachariah, he's singing because he finally can speak again. These guys sing, write songs out of deeply personal moments, and they become community songs. The early Christians, as they gathered, they didn't know what to, what to gather from. They said, well, let's sing Mary's song. Let's sing Zechariah's song. And they began to use these songs and prayers. When Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray, he taught them a prayer that doesn't have a single, singular, personal pronoun. And just so you don't have to work so hard and remember seventh grade English grammar, there's no I's, me's, or my's in the prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As much as prayer is a personal language, we are never truly alone when we pray. You are never truly alone when you pray. For one, like we talked about last week, we're participating all mysteriously into the communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We find ourselves inside a great dance. So we're certainly not alone. But even that is this picture of that we're actually joined by 
in a, in, in a mysterious way by all the saints. We had as our New Testament reading tonight the Revelation text that talks about the prayers of the saints rising up to heaven and being this bowl of incense and all this stuff. That's a picture to remind us this is real. There's no moment when you pray that you're ever, it's ever just you. You are walking where another has walked before. I actually think there's great comfort in that. Many times we, we, we go on our knees to pray because we're just so overwhelmed. And it feels like the world is against you. And it feels like the pressures of life are drowning you out. And to remember, there have been others that have been here. In fact, in a sense, the saints are here. Here they are. If it's true that when the church gathers, it's the point where heaven and earth intersect. What I mean by that is in the first century, the Jewish belief about the temple was the temple was this place where God's space and human space collided. It's where heaven and earth met. And then Paul says, let me tell you who the new temple is. All of you, plural. That means every time we gather together to pray as a church, as we gather, heaven and earth actually intersect. There's no distance in this, that we're standing here with all the saints who've gone before. Here we are, we kneel to pray, not in a seance sort of way, but we are mysteriously in the company of those who have gone before. We kneel before the throne and open our eyes and look around and we're surrounded. I think there's something incredibly powerful about remembering that you're not alone. When you go to God to pray, you find yourself in the same spot as all those who have gone before. You're not the first to feel overwhelmed. You're not the first to feel at the end of your rope. They've all walked before you. Prayer is also a learned language. It's a learned language, a personal language, a communal language, but it's a lear- it is a learned language. The fact that we have a book in our Bible called the Psalms uh, is, should be enough testimony to that, uh, that the nation of Israel collected a book of prayers, and so let's put it together, that the Psalms find themselves with markings that say this is where the music comes in, this is for the choir, this is, a, you know, meant that this is, some, this is how we, they learned to pray. Uh, in fact, as a good Jewish boy, there are pretty good odds that Jesus learned to pray by praying the Psalms, which would explain why in his moment of anguish, the prayer that comes from his lips are the words from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now that, should be, that, should have been, that could have been the whole sermon. Well, Jesus learned to pray by praying the Psalms, so so should you. God bless you. Good night. The Psalms are this prayer book. Luke 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. There's something to this because it seems that that was what a uh, man of God would do. John, they just said, taught his disciples to pray. And so Jesus' own disciples have been watching him pray, and now they're saying, all right, teach us to pray. You know, 
we talk a lot in church about being a disciple and discipleship, and we've got to make disciples and all this stuff. Disciple, in, in its essence, means to be a student, to be a learner. But to be a learner, you have to admit that there's something to learn. And I think this is the trouble with sort of saying to someone, you, you don't need to learn anything. Just, just begin. Just start talking to God. See what comes out of you. I'll tell you what comes out of you. Selfishness. Selfishness is our mother tongue. We have to learn a different language. And the language of prayer teaches us to lay down our own sort of ideologies, become students. Is it possible to take the posture of a student and say, when we come to church, here we are, not a student of me, but all of us together are a student of the way, a student of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, a student of Scripture. Lord, shape our language. Teach us how to pray. Really, we, we need to learn a new language. Greed is our nature, selfishness, our mother tongue. We have to be taught. Those of you in the room that are parents, you're keenly aware of this. Um, you, you don't have to teach kids uh, the sense of uh, possessiveness about stuffed animals or whatever, you know. That there's something that's like, hey, that's mine. Hey, no fair, you know. And as parents, uh, this is kind of a side note, but I think as parents, it's, it's a worthy question to really say, Lord, what does it mean to think of my children as students of Jesus? And how do I really disciple them? What does that really mean? Um, too often, we live in this sort of pace of life where it's relegated to someone else or something else. A screen. Here, just mess with this for an hour. Here, just watch this. Here, just do this. And it may be worth stopping to say, who is shaping my child's imagination? Who's shaping my child's language? I've come to realize what a big deal language is. Uh, language shapes the way that we see the world. And the way that you see the world is, how, is, is the basis for how you make decisions in the world. Stanley Harawas, ethicist at Duke, I, you're probably sick of me referring to him, but I, I'm soaking myself in his stuff lately, and he talks about how descriptions are more determinative than decisions. What that means is once you describe something or an action in a particular way, you've already made your decision. And that's more important to shape people's language because language affects how they actually see the world, and how they see the world determines how they act. For example, if you call abortion a choice then it sounds wonderful. But if you call it the murder of a potential life or the life of the unborn, nobody would do that, right? So descriptions are more determinative than decisions. How you learn to say something is how you learn to see something. Parents, this is a huge thing. Uh, Holly and I feel the weight of this. We don't do this perfectly, and we're thankful for other influences in our life that are helping us pay attention to this, but how you teach your child to say things is teaching them how to see the world. Learning the language of prayer is not just about getting, dotting, our, dotting our I's and crossing our T's and getting our P's and Q's right, and come on, Glenn, stop being so religious. 
learning the language of prayer is about learning to see God and his world correctly. It's about learning to say, all right, all right, all right God, I will pray these prayers because I want my whole heart and mind overhauled. I want my vision to be overhauled. Our son, Jonas, is um, uh, 18 months old, and um, he's chattering nonstop, you know, just babbling. And once in a while, a few things come out that sound like a word, you know. And my parents are here, and, uh, you know, grandparents can be overeager to imagine that that's a really complex word. No, I'm just kidding, you know. Like, I think he just said, Lex Orandi, Lex Credit. No. It's very cute for an 18-month-old to babble. But if my son is going to know his father, he's got to learn to speak my language. And he learns my language by being spoken to. We all learn a language in life by being spoken to. What are the words? How did you learn to say that? You watch parents talk. Say, ball. Ball. Buh? Ball. Buh? Ball. And buh will do for ball for a little while. But every child, part of maturing, is learning the language of his parents. Is growing up and saying, all right, all right, I got to learn. Here's what I think. It's good and fine for a person who just comes to Christ in desperation. That, oh, my God, you know, have mercy on me, a sinner. Beautiful. That's beautiful. That's all you need right there. But you know what? If you want to grow in Christ, then become a student. And as a student, say the words the first students of Jesus said to him. Lord, teach us to pray. And as you say that to him, he'll say, all right, Let's pray the Psalms together. There's this whole prayer book in, oh, there we, oh, let's pray that. And as you pray it, you find your language is shaped. We talk a lot about wanting to be in communion with our Father and wanting to love Daddy God and all that. That's great. But if you want to commune with the Father, you're going to have to learn His language. The language of prayer. What I want to suggest to you Maybe for the summer, you could do this as a family, do this as friends. Take a psalm a day, 150 psalms, right? What do we get? Well, you'd have to do more than that to get it done in the summer, but whatever. Take three psalms a day. There you go. Five? Five psalms. Goodness, doing math on the fly. Not a strength here. Five psalms. Whatever your pace is, maybe just one a day. And read it out loud with your friends. Maybe you just call each other on the phone or Skype or iChat or what, just something where you can see each other's faces. Probably doesn't work good as an IM, you know, or text or something like that. doesn't work. Just say it out loud with one another. Pray it. Blessed is the man who does not wa- uh, sit in the seat of the, you know, pray Psalm 1 together. Say it out loud. Maybe twice. Maybe there's two or three of you, maybe in a family setting, Dad's going to read it. Okay, Mom's going to read it. Okay, you, you say it now. And say it together. And the next day, okay, we've got Psalm 2 today. Okay, let's do this. Okay, Psalm 3. And you go through it. I, I promise you, 
the language of your prayer will become different after those 150 days. It will be very, very different. And you may find yourself saying, well, I, I'm, not, I mean, I'm praying a psalm here about somebody who's surrounded by the enemies on all sides, and that's not really me. No, but I bet you know someone who's surrounded on all sides by debt or a disease or by pressures at home. I bet you know someone who feels surrounded on all sides. Pray for them. Maybe that teaches you the language of prayer is not self-centered. And you begin to say, it's communal. Prayer is a communal language. Well, I don't need daily bread, but I'm connected to that person who definitely needs it. So give us today, Lord, give him, give her. So you're praying in a way that reminds you that you're not alone, that the church in Rwanda is the same church, Big C, that you're part of, that the church, you can name wherever it is, in whatever state, in whatever stream, and you can say that. What if we prayed like that? Another maybe challenge to you is you say, well, can we really do this? Start to pray in a way that acknowledges each person of the Trinity, and maybe just it's a, it's a one line about each because you're not really sure. Father, thank you that you're the creator. Jesus, thank you for saving me. Spirit, thank you that you're with me. Amen. It's good. That's learning the language of prayer. Over the long run, that will save you from a sloppy, anemic faith that says, God, Lord, Jesus, Father, thank you so much for whatever, Jesus, Father, Lord, God, Father, thanks for dying on the cross, Father. And this is not about P's and Q's. and getting. It. This is about seeing correctly. So well, what if we did that? What if we just try that? Try when you pray to think that oh, yeah, there is Father, there is Son, there is Holy Spirit. Pray that way. What do you think? Could be a good challenge. Could be something for friends to do. Could be something for families to do. Thank you, five of you. Oh, this really... <laughs> It's going to be, we're going to pray some good prayers this summer. Now, look, we're in the same boat, okay, in our home. I don't want you to have this illusion that, you know, we, we, we float on clouds and recite the Psalms to one another and as morning, you know, and every morning we wake up. We all need this, but this is part of what it means to be in a family together. We're going to, let's, let's rehearse these things together. And in doing so, maybe the language of all of our prayers will become different. Amen?